Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, aka Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And a welcome to the 189th episode of the Nauticast, titled Venom, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 5, in which the most badass person in Westeros arrives in King's Landing. That's right, everyone. Say hello to Dickon Manwoody. Well, I guess if you're going to go with the dick joke, it's appropriate that it's an Oberon and Tyrion chapter for it. <laughs> the whole chapter is one long dick joke. But yeah, everyone loves everyone loves Dickon Manwoody, even though actually Oberon never says, Oberon says like this is a, the Lord Manwoody and his sons, Dickon and Moors. So he never says out loud Dickon Manwoody. You just got to put that together only for the real fans. So our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question for this episode comes from our patron Lo the Lynx, who asks, We know a bit about the musical and theater culture in Westeros, namely that bards are dicks and that puppeteering is a dangerous business, but we know less about other forms of cultural expression like art and literature. Do you think these things exist in Westeros and just haven't been mentioned by George yet? And in that case, what kinds of art and literature might there be? Like if Sam was to take a course at the Citadel about art and literature, what would the curriculum look like? So what do you think, Manu? You, you know, you're a, you're a TA, you're an adjunct at the Citadel. You got a course going on on the, the art and literature of Westeros. What are, you, what are you teaching these people? I'd probably want to enroll myself in, like, say, the songs of the Children of the Forest um, because they were called the singers once. Uh, so I bet you there is some very interesting things to glean from that, especially if they could possibly reach different vocal tones and octaves than a human could. But this is actually like kind of a challenging question because George does a pretty good job of fleshing out what culture there could be in a lot of these places. There's books, there's songs, there's poetry, or probably there's some crossover between the songs and poetry a little. We know they have great epics and tales and stories and all that. They wouldn't have stuff like... Uh, you know, movies and television. Um, <laughs> if but, only. Uh, yeah, so I, I really don't know. I, I would be kind of interested in paintings and stuff like that because we don't hear as much about that, but we do hear about like tapestries and we do hear about like stonework. Um, I think Valyrian stonework would also be probably a good uh, class to take um, in more of the fine arts than uh, kind of literature area. But um, it's a struggle. And I think that's actually a testament to George that he actually kind of fills in all those kind of cultural gaps. Uh, food is also one, uh, perhaps not taught at the Citadel, but that is another type of art that is kind of practiced and well explored through George's work. Uh, do you got one for me? Yeah, it's easy to notice the gaps because he fills in so many of them. That's true. I think it, it does make sense in universe that there's not much widespread literature because it's, it's pre-printing press. It's pre-the advent of literacy for most people in Westeros. And the books we do hear about are kind of are prized for that reason as cultural treasures. Like there's a reason that when Tyrion gets Joffrey that very nice copy of Lives of Four Kings and Joffrey hacks it to bits and George frames that as like the worst thing anyone does in the whole story. Like you can just, his shock and horror just comes through, especially when I think it's Garland Terrell says, my, my, your grace, I don't think you knew, there were like four of those copies. <laughs> and, and Joffrey says, now there are three. Uh, and that's prized in part, uh, Oberon says, because the the drawings, the artwork, the illuminations, I think he calls them, are uh, are so beautiful. So they are enjoyable, just kind of in a very rarefied atmosphere. And part of it, I think, is framed as a gender thing. Like in the next Danny chapter, Barrison talks about how Rhaegar loved all his ballads and his sad songs, but then Robert took over and Robert just loved drinking songs. So I think there is a a kind of non-aesthetic masculinity that, that reigns in a lot of parts of Westeros that, that you know, Sam learned this himself with the 
his dad's tirades against book learning while he was at Horn Hill. But I think Sam at the Citadel might be the exception to this. If we get chapters with him there, he might find, like, oh, this is where all the paintings and the books have been have been hiding from the rest of Westeros. So we, we might see a, a major exception to that there. Yeah, I'd be interested in what's happening in Braavos, too, because they're yeah. culturally drawn from like a real world culture that's a little more advanced than kind of the Westeros setting. And we do see in like Arya's Mercy chapters that there is kind of a more robust like play and drama scene there. Um, so um, like actual playhouses, which I don't think we've really seen anywhere in Westeros so far. Uh, so I would be kind of interested in what the class is actually in. Braavos would be. Uh, Braavos U. Um, the fighting... Uh, the fighting Bravos, I'm sure, would be their uh, team mascot. The fighting Titans. That's where. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, M- Miro, the Titans bastard from that next Danny chapter. That's where he was. A, he was a linebacker. I can picture it now. <laughs> so, thank you so much to Lo for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to Patreon.com/slash Nauticast ASOIAF, where our sworn sword or higher level Patreon tiers get to ask us questions, as well as have exclusive episodes, early access to our regular episodes, and a bunch more benefits. But on to the chapter proper. We're here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 5, and this is the synopsis. A horse sneezes, pissing Tyrion off. Lord Giles Rosby coughs, also pissing Tyrion off. Tyrion didn't request Lord Giles' presence, nor Adam Marbrand, nor Jalabar Joe, nor any of these people, but Tywin didn't want to offend Duran Martell by sending only Tyrion to meet him. I wouldn't worry about that, Tywin. When it comes to you, the Martells are well past offended. Tyrion doesn't even want to be here himself. But he knows that if Joffrey had come to welcome his Dornish guests, it would not have gone well. The king has been picking up racist jokes about the Dornish from some Tyrell soldiers. Just when you think Joffrey can't get worse. Thank the gods Westeros doesn't have internet because online Joffrey is the worst of all possible <laughs> worlds. Tyrion spots the Dornish riders as they materialize from the Kingswood and approach through the ashes left over from when Tyrion set the river on fire. Tyrion is spooked by how many different banners they're flying. Bronn counts nine in total, and Tyrion asks Podrick to name the houses that are present. Pod is barely staying upright under their own royal banner. The squire has been learning Dornish heraldry on Tyrion's orders, but he still looks anxious. What a surprise. He whines about not being able to see the banners because they're flapping in the wind. Tyrion, not being able to control the wind, tells Bronn to describe the banners to Pod. What do your elf eyes see, Bronn? A red sun on orange, he called, with a spear through its back. Martell. Podrick Payne said at once, visibly relieved. House Martell of Sunspear, my lord, the Prince of Dorne. My horse would have known that one, said Tyrion dryly. Give him another brawn. There's a purple flag with yellow balls? Lemons, Pod said hopefully. A purple field strewn with lemons? For House Dalt of, of Lemonwood. Might be. Next, a big blackbird on yellow. Something pink or white in its claws? Hard to say with the banner flapping. The vulture of Blackmont grasps... A baby in its talons, said Pod. House Blackmont of Blackmont, sir. Bronn laughed, reading books again. Books will ruin your sword eye, boy. I see a skull, too. Black banner. The crown skull of House Manwoody. Bone and gold on black. Pod sounded more confident with every correct answer. The Manwoodies of Kingsgrave. Three black spiders. They're scorpions, sir. House Corgile of Sandstone. Three scorpions, black on red. Red and yellow. Jagged line between. The flames of Hellholt. Householder. Tyrion was impressed. Boy's not half stupid once he gets his tongue untied. Go on, Pod, he urged. If you get them all, I'll make you a gift. A pie with red and black slices, said Bronn. There's a gold hand in the middle. House Illyrian of God's Grace. A red chicken eating a snake, looks like? The gargolins of Saltshore. A cockatrice, sir. Pardon, not a chicken. Red with a black snake in its beak. Very good, exclaimed Tyrion. One more, lad. 
Braun scanned the ranks of the approaching Dornishmen. Alas, a golden feather on green checks. A golden quill, sir. Jordan of the Tor. Tyrion praises Pod, saying even he couldn't have named all nine. Well, that is 100% grade A bullshit, but Tyrion knows Pod's shriveled little ego could benefit from a gold star. Tyrion himself could use a confidence boost, as all nine of those houses are very powerful. Maybe he shouldn't have sent his niece to Dorne? Ah, well, I'm sure Marcella will be just fine. She has Eris Okart to keep her safe, after all. When have the Kingsguard ever let anyone down? But then Pod notices something more significant than any banner. There's no litter. And Pod knows that Duran Martell always travels by litter due to his gout. Tyrion tells himself that maybe Duran got better, or maybe he just wanted to get to King's Landing quickly, but his dread is growing, and he decides to ride forth and meet them. As the two parties approach, George takes the opportunity to describe the newcomers. From their ornate saddles were slung the round metal shields they favored, and many carried bundles of short-throwing spears, or the double-curved Dornish bows they used to sew well from horseback. There were three sorts of Dornishmen, the first King Daron had observed. There were the salty Dornishmen, who lived along the coasts, the sandy Dornishmen of the deserts and long river valleys, and the stony Dornishmen, who made their fastnesses in the passes and heights of the Red Mountains. The salty Dornishmen had the most Rhenish blood, the stony Dornishmen the least. All three sorts seemed well represented in Duran's retinue. The salty Dornishmen were lithe and dark, with smooth olive skin and long black hair streaming in the wind. The sandy Dornishmen were even darker. Their faces burned brown by the hot Dornish sun. They wound long bright scarfs around their helms to ward off sunstroke. The stony Dornishmen were biggest and fairest, sons of the Andals and the First Men, brown-haired or blonde, with faces that freckled or burned in the sun instead of browning. The lords wore silk and satin robes with jeweled belts and flowing sleeves. Their armor was heavily enameled and inlaid with burnished copper, shining silver, and soft red gold. They came astride red horses and golden ones and a few as pale as snow, all slim and swift, with long necks and narrow beautiful heads. The fabled sand steeds of Dorne were smaller than proper warhorses and could not bear such weight of armor, but it was said that they could run for a day and a night and another day and never tire. The Dornish leader forked a stallion black as sin, with a mane and tail the color of fire. He sat his saddle as if he'd been born there, tall, slim, graceful. A cloak of pale red silk fluttered from his shoulders, and his shirt was armored with overlapping rows of copper discs that glittered like a thousand bright new pennies as he rode. His high gilded helm displayed a copper sun on its brow, and the round shield slung behind him bore the sun and spear of House Martell on its polished metal surface. A Martell sun but ten years too young, Tyrion thought as he reined up. Too fit as well, and far too fierce. He knew what he must deal with by then. How many Dornishmen does it take to start a war? He asked himself. Only one. Yet he had no choice but to smile. Well met, my lords. We had word of your approach, and his grace King Joffrey bid me ride out to welcome you in his name. My lord father the king's hand sends his greetings as well. He feigned an amiable confusion. Which of you is Prince Duran? My brother's health requires he remain at Sunspear. The princeling removed his helm. Beneath his face was lined in Saturnine, with thin arched brows above large eyes as black and shiny as pools of, co as pools of coal oil. Only a few streaks of silver marred the lustrous black hair that receded from his brow in a widow's peak as sharply pointed as his nose. A salty Dornishman for certain. Prince Daran has sent me to join King Joffrey's council in his stead, as it please his grace. His grace will be most honored to have the council of a warrior as renowned as Prince Oberyn of Dorne, said Tyrion, thinking, this will mean blood in the gutters. Now that's how you introduce a character. Speaking of which, Oberyn introduces his companions, including his paramour, Alaria Sand. 
Tyrion's headache gets even worse when he hears that, because he knows that Cersei will turn up her nose at having a bastard at the high table, but also that Oberyn will be offended if they seat Ilaria anywhere else. It's Tyrion's turn to introduce his companions, and he does so, all too aware that the likes of Pod and Bronn and Giles Rosby can't hope to match Oberyn's entourage. Lady Blackmont mentions they're all as tired as hell, and asks if they can proceed on to the city already. Tyrion agrees and leads the way, thinking all the while about his new guest. Oberyn Nimeros Martell, Tyrion muttered under his breath as he fell in beside the man, the Red Viper of Dorne. And what in the seven hells am I supposed to do with him? He knew the man only by reputation, to be sure, but the reputation was fearsome. When he was no more than 16, Prince Oberyn had been found abed with the paramour of Old Lord Ironwood, a huge man of fierce repute and short temper. A duel ensued, though in view of the prince's youth and high birth, it was only the first blood. Both men took cuts, and honor was satisfied. Yet Prince Oberyn soon recovered, while Lord Ironwood's wounds festered and killed him. Afterward, men whispered that Oberyn had fought with a, po with a poisoned sword, and ever thereafter, friends and foes alike called him the Red Viper. That was many years ago, to be sure. The boy of 16 was a man past 40 now, and his legend had grown a deal darker. He had traveled in the free cities, learning the poisoner's trade, and perhaps arts darker still, if rumors could be believed. He had studied at the Citadel, going so far as to forge six links of a maester's chain before he grew bored. He had soldiered in the disputed lands across the narrow sea, riding with the Second Sons for a time before forming his own company. His tourneys, his battles, his duels, his horses, his carnality. It was said that he bedded men and women both, and had begotten bastard girls all over Dorne. The Sand Snakes men called his daughters. So far as Tyrion had heard, Prince Oberyn had never fathered a son. And, of course, he had crippled the heir to Highgarden. There is no man in the Seven Kingdoms who will be less welcome at a Tyrell wedding, thought Tyrion. To send Prince Oberyn to King's Landing, while the city still hosted Lord Mace Tyrell, two of his sons, and thousands of their men-at-arms, was a provocation as dangerous as Prince Oberyn himself. A wrong word, an ill-timed jest, a look, that's all it will take and our noble allies will be at one another's throats. As they ride, Oberyn mentions that he and Tyrion have met before, when the latter was even smaller than he is now. Tyrion chooses to ignore the insult and asks when they met. Oberyn says it was a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, when his mother ran Dorne and Tywin served a different king. Tyrion thinks that Joffrey isn't all that different from the Mad King, but wisely keeps that to himself. Oberyn continues. He visited Casterly Rock, along with his sister Elia and their nameless mother. Tyrion had just been born, which means, of course, that Lady Joanna Lannister had just died. And that's an awkward time to stop by, Tyrion thinks. Lord Tywin seldom spoke of his wife, but Tyrion had heard his uncles talk of the love between them. In those days, his father had been Aerys's hand, and many people said that Lord Tywin Lannister ruled the Seven Kingdoms, but Lady Joanna ruled Lord Tywin. He was not the same man after she died, imp, his uncle Jerry told him once. Best part of him died with her. Jaren had been the youngest of Lord Tidus Lannister's four sons, and the uncle Tyrion liked best. But he was gone now, lost beyond the seas, and Tyrion himself had put Lady Joanna in her grave. Tyrion asks if Oberyn enjoyed his time at the Rock, and Oberyn says, no, hell no, we hated that place. Tywin ignored them, Oberyn's guest room resembled a jail cell, the food sucked, and no one would fuck him. Worst of all, Tyrion himself was boring. Tyrion, quite reasonably, asks what else the Martells expected from a newborn baby. Enormity, the black-haired prince replied. You were small, but far-famed. We were in Old Town at your birth, and all the city talked of was the monster that had been born to the king's hand, and what such an omen might foretell for the realm. 
Famine, plague, and war, no doubt. Tyrion gave a sour smile. It's always famine, plague, and war. Oh, and winter and the long night that never ends. All that, said Prince Oberyn, and your father's fall as well. Lord Tywin had made himself greater than King Aerys, I heard one begging brother preach. But only a god is meant to stand above a king. You were his curse, a punishment sent by the gods to teach him that he was no better than any other man. I try, but he refuses to learn. Tyrion gave a sigh. Do go on, I pray you. I love a good tale. And well you might, since you were said to have one. A stiff curly tail like a swine's. Your head was monstrous huge, we heard, half again the size of your body. And you'd been born with thick black hair and a beard besides, an evil eye and lion's claws. Your teeth were so long you could not close your mouth, and between your legs were a girl's privates, as well as a boy's. Life would be much simpler if men could fuck themselves, don't you agree? I can think of a few times when claws and teeth might have proved useful. Even so, I begin to see the nature of your complaint. Bronn gave out with a chuckle, but Oberyn only smiled. We might never have seen you at all but for your sweet sister. You were never seen at table or hall, though sometimes at night we could hear a baby howling down in the depths of the rock. You did have a monstrous great voice, I must grant you that. You would wail for hours and nothing would quiet you but a woman's teat. Still true, as it happens. This time Prince Oberyn did laugh. A taste we share. Lord Gargolin once told me he hoped to die with a sword in his hand, to which I replied, I would sooner go with a breast in mine. Oberyn continues with his story, saying that Cersei promised to show her newborn baby bro to the Martell siblings. She got rid of Tyrion's wet nurse by calling her a cow and promising to cut her tongue out. Ah, Cersei. A very consistently written character. Cersei showed off the baby, and Oberyn saw that while Tyrion did indeed have mismatched eyes and a big head, there was nothing monstrous about him. Elia even thought he was cute. When Oberyn said that Tyrion didn't look like a curse from the gods, Cersei shoots back that Tyrion killed her mother, and then twisted Tyrion's tiny dick so hard that Oberyn thought she meant to tear it off. Thankfully, Jaime stopped her, but Cersei said that it didn't matter, because Tyrion would surely die soon. Tyrion, naturally, is fucking horrified to hear about the Freudian viper's nest that was his childhood, and wonders why Oberyn is telling him this story. Regardless, Oberyn changes the subject to a rumor he's heard that Tyrion is taxing sex workers. And yes, he is indeed. A penny per fuck to improve the city's morals, and, more importantly, pay for the royal wedding. It was Tywin's idea, but as master of coin, Tyrion is getting all the blame, for a change. Oberyn says he'll have to start carrying loose change. Tyrion is surprised that Oberyn would visit sex workers, given that he brought his paramour along, but Oberyn says that Elaria will join in the fun, especially if they find a beautiful blonde woman to share their bed. Tyrion says he can't help now that he's a married man, and now that Tywin has threatened to hang the next sex worker he finds in Tyrion's bed. Oberyn changes the subject again, saying that while he's heard there will be 77 dishes served at the wedding, he's only hungry for justice. Justice for his sister Elia. Tyrion asks if Oberyn was close to his sister, Oberyn says, of course they were, just like Jamie and Cersei. Tyrion can only pray he does not mean that literally. Wars and weddings have kept us well occupied, Prince Oberyn. I fear no one has yet had the time to look into murders 16 years stale, dreadful as they were. We shall, of course, just as soon as we may. Any help that Dorne might be able to provide to restore the king's peace would only hasten the beginning of my lord father's inquiry. Dorf, said the Red Viper, in a tone grown markedly less cordial, spare me your Lannister lies. Is it sheep you take us for, or fools? My brother is not a bloodthirsty man, but neither has he been asleep for sixteen years. John Aaron came to Sunspear the year after Robert took the throne, and you can be sure that he was questioned closely. Him and a hundred more. I did not come for some mummer show of an inquiry. I came for justice, for Elia and her children, and I will have it. Starting with this lummox Gregor Clegane. 
but not, I think, ending there. Before he dies, the enormity that rides will tell me whence came his orders. Please assure your lord father of that. He smiled. An old Septon once claimed I was living proof of the goodness of the gods. Do you know why that is, Imp? No, Tyrion admitted warily. Why, if the gods were cruel, they would have made me my, my mother's firstborn, and Duran her third. I am a bloodthirsty man, you see. And it is me you must contend with now, not my patient, prudent, and gouty brother. Tyrion looks ahead to King's Landing, and then back at Oberyn's entourage, and ahead to King's Landing, and then back at Oberyn. He points out that Oberyn is talking like he's got an army with him, when in fact he only has 300. Doesn't seem like much compared to the Gold Cloaks, Tywin's big army, and the Tyrell's even bigger army. Oberyn says that the Dornish have an old saying, all flowers bow before the sun. He'll happily trample the Tyrells underfoot. Tyrion shoots that eh, Oberyn had a head start. He has trampled the Tyrell, namely Willis, but Oberyn doesn't take the bait. As it turns out, Oberyn and Willis are friends. They regularly stay in touch, shooting the shit about their horses. Willis has never held his disability against Oberyn because he knows it was an accident. Oberyn even sent his maester to try and help. The Red Viper says Mace Tyrell was to blame for forcing Willis into the joust before he was ready. The Lord of Highgarden was trying too hard to create another Leo Longthorn. Tyrion says that Mace's third son, Loras, is said to be an even finer warrior than Leo Longthorn, but Oberyn is skeptical that, quote, Renly's little rose is actually that good. Tyrion says Loras has defeated many great warriors, especially at the Battle of Blackwater, where he fought alongside Renly's ghost. Oberyn points out that the people telling tales of Loras's heroism are also telling tales about Renly's ghost, so how reliable can they really be? Tyrion gave him a long look. Shatai is on the Street of Silk has several girls who might suit your needs. Dancy has hair the color of honey. Marie's is, whale, is pale white gold. I would advise you to keep one or the other by your side at all times, my lord. At all times? Prince Oberyn lifted the thin black eyebrow. And why is that, my good imp? You want to die with a breast in hand, you said. Tyrion rides ahead, thinking he's had enough of Oberyn's comments and wishing that Tywin had sent Joffrey. Racist jokes and all. So that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 5. What'd you make of it, Manu? Tell your father I'm here. <clears throat> Tell your father I'm here. Uh, okay, sorry, I can't do a good Pedro Pascal, <laughs> but he's just imprinted on me so much as Oberyn, and I mm -hmm. can't unsee it even as reading this chapter. But as for the chapter itself, whoa? Anything less than what we got, and I'd question George for slowing down the snowballing momentum towards the Red Wedding with a chapter that's basically an info dump. But this is Oberyn frickin' Martell, and the Red Viper explodes into our narrative here in Tyrion 5. When I say there's loads of exposition in this chapter, I am selling it short. There's enough exposition to load onto 10,000 ships and sail the narrow sea. <laughs> because we aren't just meeting Ober and Martell, we are meeting the Kingdom of Dorne, uh -huh. and with it comes a history both ancient and recent that sets it apart from the rest of Westeros. But it's not all banners and heraldry to discuss. We got a wee baby Tyrion story out of it, as well as what happened to Ober and sister Elia the day Judgment came to King's Landing. George knows he's got to dump a lot of information on the readers in this chapter, so he does it in the most deft way possible, putting it in the mouths of Tyrion and Oberyn. So some chapters that we cover are about a bunch of different things. Last time we covered Jamie 5, which has those two separate scenes in it. Next time we'll be covering Arya 7, which has a handful of little scenes in it. But then there are chapters that are about one thing and one thing only, like this one, devoted to the introduction of Oberyn Nimrose Martell, the Red Viper of Dorne. And the focus pays off. It's basically impossible to overstate what an effective introduction this is. You know, we don't actually get much of Oberyn in A Song of Ice and Fire. 
He appears in only four chapters. This one, then briefly in Sansa 4 at the Purple Wedding, then in Tyrion 9 for the trial, and then, of course, Tyrion 10 for the duel with the Mountain. Yet in spite of that, he's a fan favorite, and for good reason. George makes every paragraph, every sentence, every word count. Like I said in the synopsis, this is how you introduce a character. Tyrion's welcoming party gets small focus at the beginning, but their inclusion is very specific. The sickly Lord Giles, the outlandish exile prince Jalabar Zoe, and a pretty standard man-at-arms in Sir Adam Marbrand. Not exactly heralded company, especially with Tyrion and his reputation leading the foray. Immediately, explicitly and implicitly, the political context of the Dornish is drawn up. To welcome the princely leader of a kingdom, along with his most powerful bannerman, is one thing. To welcome said kingdom that also openly hates the ruling family, has a tortured history with the crown generally, and commands one of the few armies yet untouched by the War of the Five Kings? Well, that's something else. Plus, they hold Princess Marcilla in their custody. So one thing's clear from the go. We can't have the king mucking up this ceremonial escort. He's more likely to make a racist joke than play the part of welcoming Sovereign. And on the meta level, as Emmett discussed back in Sansa 3, George is holding back Joffrey's presence to maximum effect. We'll see him next celebrating the Red Wedding. That's all fairly obvious. We know Joffrey sucks and would fuck up everything, which Tyrion says outright in the opening paragraphs. But the real missing person of note is Tywin Lannister. If the king is not fit to welcome the lords and ladies of Dorne, then naturally that should be handled by the hand of the king, right? Well, as we're going to find out in more detail, the Dornish have every reason to hate Tywin Lannister, most specifically the architect of Elia Martell's death, as well as those of her children. At best, Tywin's presence would be an insult to the Prince of Dorne after the butchery done by the Mountain and Amory Lorge. Worst case scenario, well, someone decides to get violent then and there. The Tyrells are also notably absent, given their long enmity with House Martell. This is not really a surprise. So no Joffrey, no Tywin, no Tyrells. We're left with a dwarf, a, qu- a coughing storm, an exile prince, and some guys, charitably. <laughs> Yet even this ragtag group feels purposely chosen. We welcome you, Lords of Dorne, but don't be too welcome. Like Walder Frey sending Lothar and Black Walder to Riverrun, this party outwardly has a level of prestige and honor, but also is a peevish insult in its own right. The Lannisters aren't sending the best of the best, which Prince Oberyn notes to his vassals after formal introductions are made later. Tyrion can make this group sound high and mighty, but everyone involved sees past that. And I also don't want to miss the fact that Lord Giles Rosby was also floated as a potential suitor for Arya and Martell, something we'll discuss when we get to those chapters in Feast for Crows. Imagine that match. That's like when Tywin brings up a couple people he would marry off to Cersei. I think he mentions Balin Greyjoy at one point. It's like that <laughs> That would go about just as well. <laughs> Worst marriage ever. But yeah, it's, it's important who's here and who's not here. Politics is war by other means, right? I mean, the actual Clausewitz quote is war is politics <laughs> by other means, but it works the other way too. On the surface, the Martells should be perfectly welcome in King's Landing. Not only are they part of the coalition winning the war, but they're marrying into the royal family via Marcella and Tristane. So Martells, Tyrells, and Lannisters will all be one great house, as Uncle Kevon said in an earlier Tyrion chapter. The very fact that the Martells are coming should be a sign of strength for the current regime. You think Rob or Stannis are welcoming newcomers to their ranks? Hell no, they're both having trouble just holding on to the followers they currently have. But under the surface, there are both personal and cultural grudges here that wouldn't take much to set off. 
That's why it's so perfect that the chapter starts with like a horse sneezing and Lord Giles coughing, the kinds of ordinary sounds that wouldn't stand out normally, but absolutely do in a tense situation. I think we've all been there, right? It's an awkward reunion between people who hate each other. It's silent and then like someone coughs. In context, it feels like someone just dropped a bomb. Immediately, our shoulders tense up. We're waiting for something to go wrong. And that's exactly how Tyrion feels. Even though this tension doesn't really have anything to do with him, it ties perfectly into his arc in this book. Like we said last time we covered a Tyrion chapter, he's getting all the shit work these days. In the last book, when he was Hand of the King, he wouldn't have to do this. Or if he did, he could probably scare up a bunch of fancy and important people to come with him. Now he's got a bunch of relative nobodies with him, which makes him feel like a nobody himself. That smoldering resentment will ramp up dramatically when we get, when we get to Act 3 of A Storm of Swords, in which Tyrion and his family finally turn on each other in full. So the personal is political here. The war is not only being fought between different sides, but within each side, and even within families. So the banners of Dorne arrive, and Tyrion is immediately dismayed by just how many there are. Might as well be an occupying army marching on the capital. Eh, maybe not when he notes the 300 men later. But to hide his consternation, Tyrion has Bronn call out the heraldry and Podrick name the houses. A very direct way to introduce the reader to the Dornish houses, but with these characters, it does become more fun than if the narrator was just listing them off. Bronn gets to be himself, referring to the lemons of House Dalt as yellow balls, while Tyrion quips and japes as he's wont to do. The revelation is Podrick, who seems to be a quick study despite his very anxious demeanor. Like Emmett said in the recap, it's a great way to boost the boy's ever-wavering confidence and shows there's something working in between Podrick's ears. Bronn teasing Podrick about how books will ruin his brain makes me think of Samuel Tarly as well. But it's Pod's next observation that really worries Tyrion. Prince Doran's litter is nowhere to be found. The Prince of Doran suffers from gout and generally does not ride a horse to and fro. Tyrion tries to rationalize some reason that Doran may not be traveling by a litter, but deep down, he knows who is actually arriving underneath the sun and spear of House Martell. This is such a great way to introduce the readers not only to House Martell, but also to Doran as a whole. Doran has been very much in the background for the first two and a half books. We've heard about their role in the backstory with the Mad King, Tyrion made that marriage pact for Myrcella, and of course Ned had his fever dream about fighting the Kingsguard down in the Red Mountains of Dorne. But we haven't met anyone from the southernmost of the Seven Kingdoms, let alone gone there in the text yet. We have a lot of catching up to do. And it's easy to imagine an alternative, much worse version of this chapter, in which the exposition is very dry and detached and just boring. George was clearly working overtime to avoid that, not only by filtering it all through Oberyn's badassery, but also with this little game with the banners. Instead of just listing off the houses, George has Podrick do it, with Bronn relaying the images themselves and Tyrion egging him on. And that grounds it all in our well-established characters. Podrick is nervous, but very competent when he gets out of his own way. Bronn is more street smart than book smart like Podrick is. Tyrion is a sarcastic prick with a sentimental streak. <laughs> Pod corrects Bronn. Bronn makes fun of Pod. We know these people already. And they're all working together to make meaning out of the newcomers, which further establishes them as outsiders to Dornish culture. George is interested in how Dorn changes depending on who's looking. We'll see that again in A Feast for Crows, when we first see Dorne through an assimilated outsider, Ario Hota, and then an unassimilated outsider, Eris Okart. Moreover, if you look at the banners themselves, they tell a story. They tell the story of why Oberyn is here, as if he's spelling out his intentions and in imagery. First up is his banner, House Martell, the sun and the spear. A challenge to the gods, to nature itself. The Dornish survive the sun, and no one wields that spear like Oberyn. Next are the lemons of House Dalt. Lemons are typically symbols of abundance and hope. 
That was Oberyn's life in the youth he describes to Tyrion later. All was right with the world. Then we see a vulture with a baby in its claws for House Blackmont. Yeah, not hard to interpret that one. It's a symbol of death, specifically the death of children, which is exactly what happened to Oberyn's family during the fall of the Mad King, leading out of that hopeful youth and into his disillusionment and vengeful rage. So then, of course, we get House Manwoody's crowned skull, the downfall of the Targaryen regime, and the literal deaths of Elia, Rhaenys, and Aegon. But it also represents Oberyn's desire to kill the new royal family. Next up are House Corgyle's scorpions, associated with Dornish revenge, as Oberyn tells Tyrion in a later chapter, and he himself gives Joffrey a scorpion brooch. But Bronn mistakes them for spiders at first, and even as the Dornish work secretly for Targaryen restoration, they end up trapped in Varys' spiderweb via his gambit with young Griff. Like the crowned skull, the scorpions represent Oberyn's determination to overthrow the current regime. And so next, we get the fires of hell for House Uller. That's where Oberyn wants to send his enemies, down to the fires of hell. But it's also going to happen to his own family. The Dornishmen burn to avenge Elia and her children, as they say in a later chapter, and I think Quentin was sadly only the first. Then we get House Illyrian's pie with red and black slices, and that hand of gold in the middle. The pie, of course, makes me think of the Purple Wedding and Joffrey's death, but the red and black makes me think of the Targaryens. So while the Dornish are here to attend the royal wedding that the Lannisters are using to cement their hold on power, the reality beneath the delicious crusty surface is that they bleed black and red. They're Targaryen loyalists. That hand of gold speaks to Lannister weakness even at their moment of triumph. Jaime has lost his sword hand, and even as he replaces it with a gold one, he feels alienated from his family and cause. There's that great line later about he's, he's lost everything, but they're still telling me we won this war. Next up is the cockatrice of House Gargolin. Bronn mistakes it for a chicken, but as with spiders v. scorpions earlier, there is a major difference. Chickens are, you know, real. Cockatrices are mythological creatures, a, a wyvern or dragon-type creature with a chicken's head. They're symbols of death, and as with the fires of hell, this cuts both ways. On one hand, Oberyn is like the cockatrice. He's here to kill with a stare, like basilisks also do. On the other hand, the banner shows a cockatrice eating a serpent, a snake like Oberyn. So this might foreshadow House Targaryen turning on the Martells, likely in the form of Danny making war on young Griff. That's how it'll end for the Dornish in this series, and so the final banner is that of a quill. It's George's literal signature. And it's for House Jordain, which, as George has said, is a reference to Robert Jordan, author of the Wheel of Time series. The current lord of House Jordain is Trebor, Robert backwards, and their castle is called The Tor, which is the publishing company that puts out Jordan's books. So this last banner stands in for the presence of the author, putting all of this together. As Tyrion says, there is a message being sent here, and it's for us as well. And it's Podrick who really puts that message together, realizing that what matters most is what they don't see, namely a litter to carry Duran Martell. So Pod has done more than just memorize. He's learned how to put what he knows into practice. He knows how to read a room politically. Tyrion does too. And like you, I get the sense that he quickly realizes there was only one person Duran would send instead. Holy shit, man. That banner analysis was something else. <clears throat> Thanks, buddy. We have a tendency here to like pick over each individual word and sentence. So occasionally I come across a passage. I'm like, ah, there's nothing really here. I can just skip past it. We got so much to talk about with the Dornish races and Oberyn himself. And you just blew me away, man. Just bravo, bravo. Thank you much, Lee. So before we meet House Martell's representative, we learn of the three types of Dornish, who are all represented in the Dornish retinue. Just a quick recap, the dark-featured and olive-skinned salty Dornishmen of the coasts have the most Roynish in them, the even darker sandy Dornishmen of the deserts come next, and least Roynish are the fair-featured stony Dornishmen of the Red Mountains. 
Dorne is one of the more interesting cultures George has left us, and one with clear racial implications that we don't see much elsewhere in the main narrative outside of the Dothraki. Since the question of race generally is fraught for discussion, and specifically in A Song of Ice and Fire, I will say up front that I look at George's creation with both grace and skepticism befitting a white liberal man writing in the late 90s. And compared to the Dothraki, I think Dorne is far more successfully executed. It still has some trappings of Orientalism, but I think there's more robust work done to flesh out the people, history, and culture of Dorne. As with all things, I can only speak to my critical lens, being a brown-skinned man of the South Asian diaspora. There are places you may find me too hard on some of this stuff, and others where you'll find I'm unbothered by choices that don't work for you. We all have our own lines of what's insightful, appropriative, or problematic, and I want to talk about the heavier topics on here, so I'm only trying to impart my own experiences and wisdoms, but not saying anything prescriptive. The only thing I need you to believe is that Jamie Lannister is the best character written by George. So, George, in a 2000 So Spake Martin, cites Wales, Palestine, and Moorish Spain as his main influences for Dorne. I am not an armchair historian. I think men my age require two children and a brandy decanter before they can take up that title. But let's see if we can make sense of all this. I do think George's answer here mostly focuses on geography and climate. Wales as the country glopped on to the west-southwest of Great Britain feels very much like Dorne adjoined to the other kingdoms. The valleys and mountains line them up with the stony Dornishmen as Tyrion describes them. Not least of all, them generally being described as fairer-skinned and of hair. As we'd expect of people who live on the British Isles in real life and were the descendants of just the Andals and First Men. Welsh history of being a prick in the side to the throne of England also surely plays in part with that influence. Moorish Spain and Palestine speak more to the exterior breezy coast and the hot, arid interior of Doran, as well as the intermingling of various peoples and cultures within them. I'm assuming George is referring to the historical and geographical definition of Palestine as lands to the immediate east of the Mediterranean and not necessarily the current state held under apartheid. Though I don't think politics or historical class struggles can be ignored here either. The Moorish-Spain analogy maps most neatly onto the salty Dornishmen of the shores, with the Moorish conquest of Spain having several parallels with that of the Roynar migration led by Princess Nymeria. In the early 700s ACE, the Iberian Peninsula was mostly under Visigothic rule, but that rule was in question as civil war plagued the countryside. One of the dis dispossessed sons of a dead king reached out to the Moors for aid, Moors being Muslims who inhabited parts of Spain, the Mediterranean, and North Africa. They were organized under the Umayyad Caliphate. The Moors used this opportunity to take Spain for themselves. Tariq ibn Zayed, a Moroccan general, would lead the conquest across the Mediterranean Sea, landing at Gibraltar to begin his campaign. Fun fact, in Arabic, Rock of Gibraltar is known as Jabal Tariq, or Mount Tariq. But the parallels don't end there. According to myth, Tariq burned his entire fleet before the Battle of Guadalete to prevent his troops from fleeing. He's famously quoted as saying, O oh my warriors, whither would you flee? Behind you is the seas, before you, the enemy. Which, of course, is a great one-to-one -one with Nymeria burning her ships when the Roinar landed on the arm of Dorne, specifically at the mouth of the Greenblood. Dorne, prior to the Roinar arrival, was a divided and quarrelsome region, much of the warring occurring along the Red Mountains and Dornish marches between the Lords of the Reach, the Stormlands, and Dorne itself. 
It resembles the rest of the Seven Kingdoms in that way, squabbles between petty kings before any real unification took place. Nymeria's flight to Doran was not of conquest like Tariq's, though. She was driven out during the Roynish Wars with the colonies of Valyria. Her people settling on the coast of Doran were refugees, not conquerors. Princess Nymeria immediately established ties with Lord Mors Martell of Doran, who was not the dominant lord at the time. House Ironwood held that title. But through this alliance, Nymeria and the Martells were able to bring much of Dorne under its rule over the nine years known as Nymeria's War, combining the various people into a single fiefdom. And despite the racial and cultural differences, we do see fairly colorblind intermingling between the various Dornish peoples. Nymeria herself ended up marrying a salty Dornishman, Morris Martell, a sandy Dornishman, Lord Uller, and finally a stony Dane named Davos. The racial intermingling is fascinating to me amongst the Dornish, which, as mentioned, draws from the Moorish Spain or the clusterfucks of people in Palestine, but it also reminds me of the Spanish Americas and their revolutions of the 1800s. The Spanish colonial project in America began at the end of the 15th century and via military, biological warfare, and slavery brought the indigenous Mesoamerican populations under its fold. And then, of course, it would be a member of the Colombian Exchange, so black slaves from Africa joined the oppressed masses. I can't stress how much things actually sucked in the Spanish colonies, which, unlike our North American ancestors, only existed to make Spain richer. The peoples and lands of Central and South America were meant to be used up as completely and rapidly as possible, with all fruits of their labor flowing back to the metropole. Over the centuries of subjugation, people naturally intermingled, and outside the explicit colonizers, the peoples of the Spanish viceroyalties in Latin America were now heavily mixed race. Descendants from the white settlers of yore, the indigenous populations of the Americas, and the free and enslaved black peoples from Africa. So when revolution came to the Spanish colonies during the early 1800s, their rebellion against the metropole was far more ethnically mixed and equalitarian and eventually slave abolitionist than, say, the revolution in the United States was, where we tended to just genocide the indigenous population and allow the sin of slavery to fester unabated. The Dornish have something similar going on, wherein the Dornish unite themselves along national lines or principality lines, whatever you want to call it. Whatever natural enmity exists between the salty and stony Dornishmen exists well below Dorne's conflicts with the kingdoms to its north. We tend to see Dorne in lockstep with itself as a kingdom, and I think that's well exemplified by their arrival in force here in Tyrion V. George, of course, will complicate that once we get to A Feast for Crows, but we'll get there when we get there. Despite clear racial and colorism lines in the Dornishmen, they express solidarity rather than division along those lines. It's the rest of the kingdoms that are racist towards them. And I might be stretching here, but this also feels embodied by our own favorite Nymeria, Arya Stark's direwolf. Instead of dying a lone wolf, she forged a pack with the wolves of the Riverlands. They're not dire wolves, but wolves all the same, intermixing with their population and emerging as the leader of a ferocious fighting force on four legs. There's a similarity there that tickles my little lizard brain. But I don't want to blow my entire Doran load here. We do have some big chapters in A Feast for Crows to eventually cover, and with them will come some heavy topics. Racial colorism we've just touched on. We'll be able to dive into discussions on disability with Prince Doran, as well as uh, gender and sex with Arian, and how that lines up with the more progressive gender ideology of Doran. I think one aspect of Dorne I'm least keen on is the talk of the Dornish and Dornishmen specifically being labeled hot-blooded. 
and I don't mean their intake of dragon peppers, which I would love to try. The reason I'm a little worried about such descriptors is because it's a very common tactic of colonial settlers to call the black and brown men hot-blooded and animalistic and impulsive because it provides pretext for colonial powers to attack or kill those men and say they are doing so to save the women from a toxic culture. We'll keep an eye on that as we go, because that can be an effective point in how, say, the Northern Kingdoms talk about Dorne, but it'll be less effective if that's what actually animates the Dornish characters. Doran appears on one end of the spectrum, Oberyn and his sand snakes on the other. Really well said across the board. I, I especially agree with what, with what you're saying about how you can see George improving on how he wrote the Dothraki, who pretty much never get any individual characterization. Like I've said before, George seems to perpetually forget that they're there and then go like, oh, right, yes, and then the Dothraki showed up for a council session. Mm-hmm, they got a line. Here they are. <laughs> or Danny needs a cavalry charge, so better, better bring the, the Dothraki back into play. I think overall, George does some of his best work when he's playing with different perspectives and how they shape what we read. I think he fell short there with the Dothraki because he doesn't really challenge how other people see them. With the Dornish, by contrast, there's this interesting interplay of perspectives. Even as he breaks down the Dornish into stony, salty, and sandy, George reminds us that this is how they were described by King Daron I, aka the guy who was trying to conquer Dorne at the time. Mm-hmm. That's not to say these distinctions have no merit. I think they do reflect the different peoples of Dorne as the waves of migration from Essos have transformed the place over time. But it matters that it's not the Dornish themselves who came up with those categories. They were imposed from without by people who wanted to force them to be part of a united Westeros. In the process, the would-be conquerors of Dorne ironically united Dorne against them, like you were saying, building on Nymeria's work. The Dornish came to define themselves against those invading forces. Who are we? Not Salty, nor Stony, nor Sandy, not Andal, or Roinar, or First Men. We're Dornish. We are that which Westeros tries to take away from us. That's a source of strength for them, but it also came to gradually define how they looked from the outside. Daron I observed these ethnic and cultural distinctions, but when Joffrey and the Tyrell men tell those racist jokes Tyrion was thinking about earlier, they're presenting Dorne as a monolith. And I think that's a solid illustration of how racist ideologies say more about the people who believe in them than the people targeted by them. It doesn't matter that the Dornish are diverse, that many of them have fair skin and similar ancestors to those on the other side of the mountains. Centuries of war and distance have made them an ideologically convenient other, something those jokes tap into. Go from south to north and you'll find the same dynamic. The wildlings are seen as a faceless mass of barbarians, despite being made up of many peoples, most of whom have common ancestry and culture with people in Stark territory. George's own description of the Dornishmen arriving in King's Landing feels grounded. Everything from their clothes to their horses reflects the reality of living in largely desert territory, with that scorching sun always overhead. But then Tyrion sees who's leading them, and that shoves every other thought out of his head. Okay, let's talk about the Red Viper in the room. Prince (laughs) Oberyn Martell, who immediately cuts a legendary figure when he steps on page. George's word choices here are great. A stallion black as sin, sat a horse like he'd been born there, shining bronze in the sun, the son of House Martell Banner doing its part as well. Immediately, Tyrion recognizes this man as fierce, capable of starting a war all by himself. Silver streaks in his hair give him the look of a silver fox, but everything else about the man is sharp. His widow's peak and his nose come to a point like a spear. Oberyn introduces his vassals in turn, before finally bringing forth his paramour, Ilaria Sand. The laws of inheritance and mores around sexuality differ in Doran. 
Within a single introduction, we have introduced a challenge to the Iron Throne hegemony, an attack on the class structure of the noblesse and their disregard for baseboard offspring, as well as the normative mores surrounding marriage and sexuality. Prince Oberyn consorts outside of the confines of marriage, even heterosexual sexuality as well, and his bastard children therefore earn all his love and fatherhood regardless. Compared to the rest of Westeros, it's goddamn radical thinking. It's also quite funny processing this through Tyrion's eyes. As a matter of narrative, he's got to be the one who feigns some level shock at this, representing the crown, his monocle dropping into a champagne glass. Were he not representing the crown, you'd think Tyrion would very much be on board with the open sexuality of the Dornish. He basically has to process this as if he were Cersei, which of course is ironic since Cersei's children are bastard born out of wedlock themselves, yet seek all the levers of legitimacy in the eyes of gods and men. Tyrion wonders what he's going to do with the Red Viper, which again tickles me because if it was not for wartime and Tyrion being a government official, you can see a vision, a version where Tyrion and Oberyn might get along quite swimmingly. Yeah, I'm sure they could think of a lot of things to <laughs> do together in peacetime. Things that would, you know, get censor bars put all over the screen. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the irony of Oberyn bringing up the tax on sex workers in this chapter. That's not something Tyrion would ever come up with. It's like the definitive Tywin policy. Pick people's pockets even as you shame them for it. But Tyrion has to enforce it. He has his name on it, and so it's part of his reputation. Would that he could live like Oberyn instead. Second son's got to stick together, right? And speaking of which, coming back to this chapter, after season one of House of the Dragon, it's more clear than ever that Oberyn is the Dornish Daemon Targaryen. Like Daemon, Oberyn is a hot-headed warrior prince, the younger brother of a more cautious and less physically fit ruler, Viserys I versus Doran Martell. Like Daemon, Oberyn is divisive in-universe. People tend to either love him or hate him. Both men are above all unpredictable, using both strength and smarts to cut through social norms and seize what they want. In both cases, George was inspired by the Byronic model of masculinity, men who are dangerous to know because of how easily their brash charisma can fuel bloodshed. Above all, though, Oberyn is like Damon in terms of moral ambiguity. The rogue prince, as George wrote in the novella of that same name, was both a hero and a villain, depending on who's telling his story. And you can see that right away here. On one hand, we're primed to be wary of Oberyn. He's not the guy we were expecting, and Tyrion tells us that he's basically a one-man war machine, whose arrival could mean blood in the gutters. In other words, here comes trouble. On the other hand, Oberyn is, is just so purely awesome. <laughs> we were talking about John Ford movies last time, and Oberyn's intro makes me think of how John Wayne is introduced in Stagecoach, that famous zoom in on his face as if to say, here he is, this is the guy right here, star of the show. George describes Oberyn's horse as black as sin with a mane and tail the color of fire. That's so fucking cool. And Oberyn knows it. He's an expert at cultivating his brand. <laughs> he's, he's slim. He's graceful. I love how Tyrion says he's sitting his saddle like he was born in it. That's important. It all has to look effortless because that's the essence of being cool. It seems to come naturally. You're never trying too hard. Not only does Oberyn look cool, he sounds cool. All suave and seductive. Never let it be thought that I would neglect the ladies especially Alaria. And yeah, like you say, this is Oberyn challenging not only the Lannister regime, but the culture of most of Westeros. Now, it's not that men are actually expected to confine their sexuality to monogamous marriage. It's that they're expected to keep any sex outside those confines secret. Visit a brothel, wear a hood, use a different name, and if you father kids, disown them or send them away. Anything to avoid making this awkward, because the power structures of Westeros are partially built on this approach to sexuality. Let's use the Lannister men as an example of how this goes. Tywin's father Tytos broke the rules. 
He hung around with his mistress in public, gave her his late wife's jewels, even involved her in policy. Not only was this personally embarrassing to Tywin, it was politically dangerous, because this kind of behavior was associated with weakness in the eyes of their vassals. That's why he comes down so hard on Tyrion, inflicting shame on his son and violence on the women he sleeps with, forcing Tyrion to jump through all those hoops to keep seeing Shay in the last book. Later in this book, of course, we're going to learn that Tywin has a taste for sex workers as well. He might even get off on the secrecy and shame of it. So what if you just didn't have to do any of that? What if you could just have sex and it turned out not to be the end of the goddamn world? It's the promise of liberation, and I think you're totally right that this is designed to be a temptation for Tyrion specifically. What if his dick belonged to him, rather than to his dad and the system at large? Oberyn sleeps with men as well as women, and doesn't suffer for it. He and Ilaria seem to frequently bring in third partners without anyone getting jealous. He's never fathered a son, but unlike, say, Stannis, he couldn't care less. And yeah, in context, Oberyn is, is absolutely provoking his hosts, just daring them to disapprove of his licentious lifestyle, for which he's famous. Or infamous, again, depends on who you ask. So Tyrion tells us a little more about Oberyn now. From the story of his affair with Lord Ironwood's paramour, we instantly see Oberyn as a man of passion, of appetite, and a deadly foe, possibly even underhanded in his use of poison. The Red Viper moniker was earned already by age 16. Age made him no less fierce. He would further study poisons and darker arts still. Given his time at the Citadel, part of me wonders if Oberyn hung out with Maester Marwyn, who would be a good resource for all of Oberyn's hobbies. Everything else we know about Oberyn, at least from Tyrion, seems to invoke fucking and fighting, including founding his very own sellsword company. He was also a member of the Second Sons, which, appropriate for a second son, but also the same company Tyrion will find himself in by the end of A Dance with Dragons. Like I said, in any other circumstance, Tyrion and Oberyn would be two peas in a podrick. I love the idea of Oberyn in Marwyn's little study group. It makes, makes perfect sense for someone with such wide-ranging interests and so few scruples. And yeah, Tyrion gives us this quick rundown on Oberyn's reputation, which he calls fearsome, but always letting us know, like, there's oh, there's way more. I'm scraping the surface. <laughs> there's so many stories I could tell about this guy. Like I said, George is trying to establish that Oberyn is a hero and a villain at the same time. He's toying with our sympathies. When we read that as a teenager, Oberyn was caught in bed with old Lord Ironwood's paramour and challenged to a duel, we're probably on his side. He didn't hurt anyone, and isn't Dorne supposed to be more open-minded about this sort of thing? That Lord Ironwood is described as having a fierce temper makes Oberyn seem like the underdog here. But then we learn that the duel was only until First Blood, because of Oberyn's privileged position as a prince. And then we learn that Oberyn almost certainly poisoned his weapon to make Lord Ironwood die of his wounds. And I say almost certainly because it happens again with Gregor. Well, that's pretty messed up, right? Like, Oberyn killed this guy who was willing to let him get away with a cool scar in their play duel. I get the sense that Oberyn just wasn't used to facing the consequences of his actions, and was pissed off that anyone tried to make him do so. As with Damon, his great flaw is pride. Oberyn is too cool. It's convinced him that he's the protagonist of reality, and anyone interfering with his story will get what they deserve. We'll see that again in A Feast for Crows, when his eldest daughter Obera talks about Oberyn smacking her mother around when she wanted to keep Obera with her. Obera tells that as a happy story, but I don't know if the reader is supposed to necessarily take it that way. <laughs> As we'll also see in A Feast for Crows, the Sand Snakes represent different aspects of Oberyn, just like how Stannis and Renly were framed as two halves of the whole that was Robert. The Sand Snakes embody Oberyn's restless dilettante spirit, 
roaming the world, trying this lifestyle and that, fathering children on women in Old Town, and Volantis, and the Summer Isles. Again, this is ambiguous. On one hand, you could frame Oberyn as well-rounded. He's a renaissance man, someone equally at home in a sellsword camp and a citadel library. He's got brain and brawn. He's a jack-of-all-trades. On the other hand, a jack-of-all-trades is a master of none, and you could just as easily frame Oberyn as a bored, spoiled, shallow rich kid who can't be bothered to finish anything he starts because he can always move on. The overall impression is of a man who cannot be contained, whose outsized legend is just trying to keep up with reality. I love this bit when Tyrion thinks about his tourneys, his battles, his horses, his duels, his carnality. There's the, that poetic rhythm to that, like he's growing larger with each repetition. Oberyn absorbs everything into his singular personality. Like, think about it. How is it his tourney or his battle? <laughs> Don't tourneys and battles kind of by definition involve a bunch of people? But once Oberyn shows up, it's his. The party doesn't start until he walks in. And the association there of battles, duels, and tourneys with carnality gets at the fighting fucking crossover you were talking about, which adds a layer of danger to Oberyn's frequent discussions of sex, because you know he'll whip out that spear as easily as he'll whip out that dick. Yeah, we have so much ground still to cover in this chapter. <laughs> Hell so yeah. So George, George shifts away from the Dornish infotainment and into something much more personal for our point of view. Oberyn recalls his first encounter with Tyrion, who just so happened to be freshly born when a young Oberyn and Elia toured Casterly Rock. In Tyrion, the Martell siblings expected a great monster, a punishment born to Tywin Lannister. Tyrion's monstrosity knew no bounds. He was hideous, with all-purpose genitalia, and a tail and a wicked eye. He committed quote-unquote murder upon his birth, killing his mother Joanna, Tywin's great love, or something like that. <laughs> the last is the most potent narrative of all, that this was Tywin's bane for daring to stand above the Mad King. This was gossip coming out of Old Town too, the religious and academic center of the realm. Tyrion's birth literally heralded the apocalypse, the famine and death, and the long night to come. Oberyn notes his disappointment. Baby Tyrion was none of these things. Not really, anyway. Elia even went, aww, baby, <laughs> upon sight of him. He's a bit disproportionate, but just a baby. This was no monster. But the funny thing is this. Tyrion becomes these things by the end of A Storm of Swords. He laments not being the monster you would have me be at his trial, and later on to Jaime says, and I am the monster they all say I am. Yes, I killed your vile son. When the monster becomes fact, print the monster. Tyrion in the end proves to be Tywin's bane, murdering him on the toilet while also being an assumed Kingslayer and receiving much of the blame for the poor management of King's Landing following the death of Robert. And depending on the manner in which he returns to King Landing with Daenerys at his side, those dragon claws and tails may complete the bingo on the myth of Tyrion the monster. He really does herald the apocalypse. And that's a great structure George plays with a lot. You have a, a persona or a presumption that doesn't directly line up with reality, but it does so in an ironic way or even a self-fulfilling way. People profiting from the slave trade in Essos slander Daenerys, but they're not inventing their propaganda out of whole cloth. They're taking a seed of truth, like how she treats the Yonkish emissary in her next chapter, and blowing it out of proportion. And she's driven to her most extreme actions by how relentlessly inhumane that slave trade is. Same with Stannis. One of the singers at the Purple Wedding describes him as a stereotypical Dark Lord, but it's that very rejection that drives Stannis on to do some very Dark Lord things. Or Theon. He didn't actually kill the Stark boys, but he did kill other boys to make everyone think he did. 
We impose narratives on reality, but reality also shapes itself around those narratives. It's a dragon eating its own tail. Did the gods really send Tyrion as like, punishment for Tywin's hubris? Who knows? I kind of doubt it. But what matters is that this idea fit a narrative that already existed. Tywin was overproud, God above his station. What matters is what people believe, and Tywin himself believes it. He had that line earlier in the book where he was telling Tyrion about how the, the gods have condemned me to waddle about in my father's colors to, to teach me uh, humility. Like, he believes it. That's why Tyrion's here. It's a great parallel to Oberyn's own reputation, inflated over time, becoming a story people like to tell regardless of what the reality is. The reality of Casterly Rock was disappointing to Oberyn, not only because Tyrion turned out to be just a baby who mostly looked like other babies, but also because the rock is a miserable place. Drab, sexless, just boring. Now, we've never been to the rock in the text. We have to trust Oberyn's word. He's probably right, but it's all colored by the context of their arrival. Joanna had just died, and she really seems to have been the life of the place. Oberyn gives us one of our more intimate info dumps on Lannister history, and it's interesting coming from an outsider perspective. We get a brief image of an unmiserable Tywin when Joanna was alive. Tyrion, for the second straight chapter, thinks back on Uncle Jerry he loved the most, but lost at sea. And young Cersei in the flashback as well. She's Cersei. But as cruel as she is here, it should be said that her coldness towards Tyrion, and the servants as well, is probably learned directly from Tywin. Even if Joanna dies in childbirth, anything resembling a healthy and loving response from Tywin Lannister probably imprints on Cersei. This chapter has mentions of imprinting hatred on the next generation at both ends of the spectrum, an intimate version between father and daughter here, or the generational conflicts between Doran and Highgarden. Jamie's also there too, of course, and his response of deferring to his sister, then coming to his brother's aid, possibly a bit too late, is a good snapshot of Jamie, I'd wager, especially right now. He does save his brother at the end of this book from Cersei's cruelty, but Jamie being a little too late with the Taisha truth prevents them from departing on good terms. Tyrion wonders why Oberyn shares the story with him, and why right here and right now. He plays it off with the jape, but I do think it's worth examining. Oberyn could just be being a prickly prince with a name like Red Viper, I'd assume he'd be a little venomous. And as we'll get into shortly, Oberyn has a clear reason to hate Lannisters. Could he just be ratcheting up tension so things come to violence, a realm in which Oberyn excels? Yeah, probably a little bit. He's definitely looking to provoke something. But I personally do think the story is for Tyrion. Oberyn, we'll find out, is a sharp guy, aware of what's going on, more plugged into the Game of Thrones than his hot-headed reputation may indicate. Tyrion should see an ally in Oberyn, who is after all a friend to cripples, bastards, and broken things as we learn about his relationships to Doran and Willis Tyrell and the Sand Snakes. These are the people you are working with, Tyrion Lannister, vile, awful people who also just so happen to hate you. Are you sure you're on the right side? Tyrion defended Joffrey City and now administers Tywin Edicts. He's shown loyalty to his side basically because of the Lannister name. Well, here's a man from Dorne, a place where having an old and ancient name isn't treated as the end-all or be-all. House Martell from the jump was ready to share its culture, its realm, its name with Nymeria. Maybe you can think outside of these feudal familial borders. I'm really glad you brought this up because it stands out on reread. Like, why is Oberyn even bothering to tell this story. What purpose does this serve for him? It's easy to imagine a version of this scene where they're talking about his family the entire time. You know, the, the reason he's here and kind of the most important thing in terms of what he's going to do now. 
But instead, Oprin goes out of his way to give us Tyrion's origin story. What's he up to? I think he tells us right before the duel that kills him. It is said that a Lannister always pays his debts. Perhaps he will return to Sunspear with me when the day's bloodletting is done. My brother Duran would be most pleased to meet the rightful heir to Casterly Rock, especially if he brought his lovely wife, the Lady of Winterfell. Putting everything in terms of those extremely powerful castles. Oberyn isn't here only to tear down the current regime. He's here to pave the way for what comes next. Now, it's unclear what exactly that's supposed to be at this point, and we're going to talk more about that towards the end of the episode. But regardless, Dorne can't get it done on their own, even if they're playing defense, which they're so good at. They need friends. Maybe this is partially why Oberyn stayed friendly with Willis Tyrell. After all, he's the heir to Highgarden, another one of those important powerful castles. Sansa could wind up holding Winterfell in her own name or her son's name, as far as Oberyn knows. And Tyrion? Well, even if he doesn't get the rock, he's Sansa's husband. Very useful allies. So Oberyn is trying to win Tyrion over, and this is how he chooses to do it. By letting him know that he has been an enemy of House Lannister from within since the day he was born. Why not make it official? Take up arms against them. Don't let them keep squeezing your cock your whole life. And I think that sums up Oberyn's character. He's provoking Tyrion, making him vulnerable and defensive, but is ultimately doing so to try and be friends with him. What seems venomous is actually friendly. But then again, Oberyn can switch back to actual venom on a dime. And on that note, Oberyn finally arrives at his purpose. He is here for justice, for someone to answer for the death of his sister Elia, from whom he was inseparable as a youth. Just to cap off this little runner from our last two point of view chapters, Oberyn remembering the mountain and Amory Lorch's assault on Elia and her children completes the Jeopardy category of before, during, and after the fall of the Mad King Eris. In Davos 4, Stannis talked at length about declaring for Robert and the build-up to the Trident. Jamie 5 showed us that great day of reckoning, and here now in Tyrion 5, we get the last bit of that day in King's Landing when Rhaegar's line was supposedly snuffed out at the command of Tywin. All of that could probably have been told in one long exposition dump, but breaking it down into discrete act structure with character stakes is among the reason George's world building is so enriching. It's not only inherently interesting, but it's actually delivered to us in compelling ways, the form every bit as riveting as the content. This chapter is an excellent place to punctuate that fact, since it's a chapter full of exposition and lore. Tyrion quickly catches Oberyn's point, but he immediately falls into excuses about other obligations the crown has, the length of time, and stammers out a, uh, we shall, of course, just as soon as we may, that makes me think of Secession's cousin Greg testifying before Congress. Yes, if it is to be said, so it be, <laughs> so it is. Tyrion even dares to request assistance for the war effort, aka spill Dornish blood against Starks and Baratheons, to hasten an inquiry. Oberyn quickly drops the smiles and laughters, not unlike Bolton last chapter, and also not unlike Bolton, is very quick to say Lannister's lie. Doran and Oberyn, the grass and the viper, had met with Jon Arryn after the fall of Aerys. They know all about Gregor Clegane, and 16 years of waiting does not mean 16 years of inaction. Oberyn is well past inquiries. It's about blood and confirming the chain of command that led to the death of Elia. If he was the firstborn and lord of Sunspear, that blood would have already been spilled. And while our time with Oberyn will be tragically too short, I think this is why he leaves such a mark on us as a reader. A mark made more impressive when you realize he's really in less than two-thirds of a single book. 
Oberyn is instantly well characterized, given a clear want and short-term win condition. He's instantly shown as dangerous, cunning, and even a nefarious warrior. This isn't a slow unraveling of character like Jamie Lannister. This is a fully formed thought, ready to go because our time with Oberyn is going to be limited. To quote a Tyrell, not from A Song of Ice and Fire, but from Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long, and you will have burned so very, very brightly, Oberyn. I love that the Tyrells in Blade Runner and the Tyrells in A Song of Ice and Fire. Like, yeah, those could be the same people. I could believe <laughs> they're rich, they're powerful, they're kind of awesome, but also kind of terrifying. You know what? The story checks out. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. This is what separates Oberyn from the other characters with whom George tried to recreate that same lightning in a bottle. Like, what does Dario Naharis want? To fight and fuck. Nothing more. What does Darkstar want? To never hear about his perfect cousin Arthur ever again, thank you. And these are not exactly strong motivations. They don't really lock you into the character's headspace. They're all surface, and so those characters just are kind of easy to make fun of. Now, Oberyn is just as over-the-top as them, maybe even more so. But he's got this desire burning from within. Justice. Justice for my sister, for all that she suffered, and the little children too. That links him to another second son, Ned, who is otherwise the polar opposite of Oberyn in terms of personality. Oberyn is more like Ned's older brother, Brandon. But Ned wanted to save the children and Oberyn is here to avenge them. In the middle of what looks like a Lannister victory parade, here comes the Red Viper to put the system on trial. And there's such a rush to that, I think, for the first-time reader. Immediately, you get invested. It's a great way of getting us into the Dornish characters on an intimate, emotional level. It's so telling that Tyrion didn't even see this coming, as he thinks he really should have. It's a great way of pulling a rug out from under the audience. We're set up to believe that Oberyn is a threat because of bad blood between him and the Tyrells. After all, where is Joffrey learning his racist jokes from? Tyrell men, a product of centuries of war and hatred. But there are multiple histories involved here. Dorne and the Reach haven't actually been at war for a long time, not within Oberyn's lifetime. In fact, they fought on the same side during the last war. They were both backing the Mad King. So for Oberyn, the much more relevant beef is with the Lannisters. Because they didn't fight a war with his ancestors. They murdered his sister, and his nephew, and his niece. And they did so really not that long ago. Tyrion didn't see this coming because he didn't want to see it coming. He didn't want to realize the potential consequences of making a deal with the Dornish. And he's following his father's lead in sweeping this under the rug. I think his response to Oberyn is, is really well written. It's, it's very recognizable. It's the kind of infuriating bullshit you hear from press secretaries and PR firms. Just, we're, we're far too busy being in charge to worry about, what was it, justice you called it? Ah, quit living in the past. Help us continue to be in charge, and then we'll get right on that whole justice thing, we promise. It's an obvious con, asking for something while giving nothing in return. Tyrion acts like they've just, they've just been too busy, like we've been at war ever since Elia and her children were killed. <laughs> but the fact is that Robert had years of peacetime to address this, and never did. And now we're going to offer an inquiry? What would that look like in practice? Just Tywin, Kevon, and Pycelle sitting around congratulating each other on doing nothing wrong? And I feel like like George threw that in there specifically to ground modern audiences, that the inquiry, because we're very familiar with blue ribbon government panels and corporate HR initiatives that are more about appearing to address problems than actually addressing them. No wonder Oberyn brings down the hammer in response. It's all the more insulting because he was just trying to get Tyrion on his side. Look at how bad your family is. And now here Tyrion is, opening his mouth and letting his father's words come out, as Robert said about Cersei on the show. It's cathartic, especially because Oberyn finally makes plain why he's here. He's not just after Gregor, who he hilariously calls the enormity that rides. 
Because as bad as Gregor is, he's not the prime mover. He didn't wake up one day and decide to kill the Martells. Oberyn implies he's here to bring down Tywin as well, for giving the order. That's how dangerous he is. That's how ambitious he is. It's hard not to cheer him on. You really get the sense of how this anger has been building for years. That Oberyn is not only out for revenge, he's also pissed off that we're being treated like sheep or fools. You think you can just ignore us for 16 years and then offer an inquiry. I love his line about the gods being good because they had Duran born first. Oberyn is self-aware. He knows he shouldn't be in charge. He might be too quick-tempered to make a good ruler. That's not the job he was born for. But this is. Once Oberyn makes his intentions clear, Tyrion retorts back with force. Oberyn may carry the name of Red Viper, but King's Landing is the real Viper's next, and between the Vipers in gold or crimson or brandishing roses, Oberyn may not find the capital so welcoming. The Tyrells are Tyrion's main gambit here, banking on Tyrell Martell enmity. Oberyn is unbothered by this, and when Tyrion deigns to throw Willis under the bus, Oberyn is shockingly more unbothered by this. The accepted story of Oberyn and Willis is one Tyrion has bought hook, line, and sinker, just like young Oberyn expected the story of baby Tyrion to be true. But Oberyn and Willis are bros. They share some hobbies, follow the horseflesh hashtag on TikTok together. <laughs> it's Mace Tyrell who asks too much of a young Willis, trying to enforce the patriarchy and gender norms on his sons rather than coddle Willis's own nature. You can also see shades of Samuel Tarly in that, too. And one more time, George does a great job wrong-footing us with Oberyn. He just revealed he's here to pursue a vendetta against the Lannisters. Like Tyrion, we might assume that extends to the Tyrells as well. Why not? And like Tyrion, we'd be wrong. Turns out Oberyn and Willis are good buds. And this is important because it establishes that Oberyn doesn't just fly off the handle all the time. You were saying earlier about the, the kind of the, the hot-headed attitude and how that can be used in nefarious, insidious ways. I think George is trying to counter that here by saying, look, this is a situation in which Oberyn... He had no beef with Willis because he had no need to. He had a pretty clear-headed view of what actually happened in that tourney. What actually happened was that Mace pushed Willis into it before he was ready, all to make another legend like Leo Longthorn. It's another example of how enforced gender roles, combined with an obsession with reputation and narrative, can lead to tragedy. This isn't the story as Mace Terrell would tell it. Oberyn is here to tear down all of these narratives of the winners of the war, he cuts through Loris's public image as well. I love that he, he points out anyone who tells tales of him fighting alongside Renly's ghost, well, that means they bought into the ghost. So how seriously are you taking those stories? Yeah, and he tries to pivot to those other great victories, which are t uh, Loris's victory at Tourney and murdering two knights, <laughs> though at least Loris does show some contrition for that later on. Oberyn could honestly just repeat Catelyn Stark adage and nothing would be amiss. These are the Knights of Summer. Tyrion has to end on a jab, and it's a pretty weak one at that. <laughs> uh, you want to die with a breast in your hand, and you clearly have a death wish, so find a brothel and keep someone by you. Tyrion really thought he had something there. <laughs> I, I don't blame him, though. When you have to contend with the Red Viper of Dorne, you're like to be rattled and not be on your A-game. Totally understandable. And I do agree with Tyrion on this. I would love to see Joffrey meet Oberyn Martell. And speaking of meeting the Martells, uh, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, while we don't actually meet Duran Martell in this chapter, it's set up and taken away from us, we do get uh, some important groundwork for when we do meet him. We learn that he has gout and that he is more, quote, patient and prudent than Oberyn. So it makes sense when we meet him in A Feast for Crows, and he comes off as, as too hesitant, the Sand Snakes are pissed off at him for not doing anything, only for the rug to be pulled out from under us again when we learn he's had a master plan going this whole time. So you can already see George setting us up for that sucker punch here. 
Yeah, I like that we don't hear too much about Doran, so that when we meet him, we get instantly frustrated with what we assume is his inaction. So when he actually does reveal his plan, it does feel like a win. If we were already hearing the complaints about him here being kind of slow moving, that might be a little too much and maybe George overplaying his hand. Yeah, agreed. I think Tywin brings it up a little bit later. He says uh, Dura Martell is as thoughtful, reasonable, almost indolent to agree, but it's it's only just for contrast with Oberyn. So it's, it's not too much on your head. You're set up for it perfectly. And a little thing, who knows if this was intentional or not on George's part, but I was thinking when it's mentioned in this chapter that that the tax on sex workers is being called the dwarf's penny. I think that's just funny just because when we get to a dance with dragons, Tyrion spends a lot of time with a dwarf named Penny. So the, the dwarf's penny, he just can't get away from it. Just bravo on picking that out. I never would have picked that. Again, who knows? Obviously, a lot of words going around in these books, big books, lots of lots of coincidences, but it just it stood out on, on, on this read. So moving into theory and discussion, obviously Oberyn is coming into King's Landing with a lot of momentum, wants to get stuff done. So the question naturally emerges, what what stuff? Exactly what stuff does he want done besides killing Gregor and maybe Tywin too? What's actually plan A? Especially because as things work out, of course, Oberyn ends up uh, Tyrion's champion in a trial by combat after the death of Joffrey. But there's no way Oberyn somehow saw that set of dominoes falling. So... Obviously, we don't have a concrete answer here, but from what we get, what do you think? What do you think was Oberyn's plan at this point, this day, when he walks into King's Landing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. One I hadn't really interrogated until we started prepping for this episode, and I kind of think the best I can come up with is he's going to be a Ned Stark 2.0 or mm. a Ned Stark 2.0 Oberyn, if you will. <laughs> um, I think that small council seat is perhaps what his angle was. Like, show up. There's a Tyrell on the table. There's a Lannister here. Um, I'm intimate with the finances, the Master of Whispers. Maybe I can see what's going on, see what to pick, prick and prod at, and then eventually form a better plan. I think some of it might also just be buying time. Um, assuming he's in on the entire Daenerys Targaryen gambit with uh, Prince Doran, he doesn't want the Dornish to get into a war too fast. But I don't... That's where the kind of trial by conduct gets a little in the way because it seems like uh, Oberyn's kind of filling out his own personal deeds when he probably should have like slow played it to give Doran's plan a little more time to hatch. But um, the other one thing I want to throw in, and it's not a theory I buy into, but there is one that we'll talk about later in the book where uh, Oberyn maybe poisoned Tywin or is part of the reason he was sitting on that toilet at the end of um, the book. I'm not sure I buy that theory, but that could be something that Tyrion or Oberyn rather was trying to do eventually is maybe figure out what's going on and then then remove Tywin, if not through a trial by con- combat and getting some way like, oh, we can put him on trial for war crimes or something, then at least poison him and he can die on the toilet all the same. Yeah, I, I totally agree that it seems like Oberyn just kind of seized an opportunity when he saw it, when it, when it came, when, once he realized that Cersei would be putting forward Gregor as her champion, if uh, Tyrion went for trial by combat, Oberyn couldn't let that opportunity pass. It's it's hard to tell because we get conflicting information from Duran Martell when we get to Dorne. Because on one hand, he tells the Sand Snakes in A Dance with Dragons that your father was the viper, but I was the grass that protected him while he struck. We worked together a lot more closely than you knew. And we know that Oberyn was the one who signed the marriage pact with Viserys and Aryan. And uh, so it seems like they were working together very closely. But uh, Duran also says to one of the Sand Snakes that uh, Oberyn exceeded his orders, that I told him to, you know, wait and bide his time, watch for an opportunity, and he moved too quickly. He couldn't hold himself back. So I think a lot of this, the, the answer is that George doesn't know either <laughs> because uh, the Dornish characters, are, it's, it's so compressed and uh, they're kind of 
yeah, different plans and potential plans moving in and around each other all the time. So kind of how it happened was the the kind of the, the only shape George could could hammer it into. From from what we can glean from these characters, it seems like they may have, that Oberyn and his daughters may have been planning to crown Marcella as a way to instigate war with the Lannisters and Tyrells with an eye towards eventually uh, backing a Targaryen once they had kind of exhausted their enemies. It's interesting that, yeah, Oberyn is coming in with this with this sheer force of charisma, but then kind of comes up against the wall of, of actual the actual government bureaucracy. It reminds me, I was comparing him to Brandon Stark, Ned's older brother, and it reminds me of, of how Brandon's plan was to ride into the Red Keep shouting for Prince Rhaegar to come out and die, which was very brave and kind of awesome, but like that's that's the plan. <laughs> and then what? <laughs> what if he had done that? What would you have done then? I think Oberyn is a uh, more smarter strategic guy than Brandon Stark, but I think there is that same dynamic of uh, an interesting conflict between the righteous lone wolf hero warrior vengeance and governing. And how how do you integrate those two? I think something that George is interested in, and I think the, the Martells are working it out in their own way. It will be interesting when we revisit Doran in The Winds of Winter and Beyond if we find out what pla- or what part Oberyn might have had in some bigger plan if, you know, with Daenerys and Quentin or anything else that ends up happening with Young Griff. But maybe we'll get some light into maybe what Oberyn was supposed to do or what his actual mission was initially. Yeah, that's a good call. Something uh, some people have pointed out before is that how funny it is. <laughs> That Duran sends these two two people off on quests. He sends Oberyn to King's Landing. He sends Quentin to Slaver's Bay. And how much better he might have been if he had flipped those two. <laughs> like if if the job was really just to go and wait and watch, Quentin's perfect for that. Just send Quentin to sit on the small council and you know read books and 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 learn things, and then send Oberyn to Slaver's Bay. Because as we'll get into when we get to Daria Daria Harris, Oberyn Oberyn is very much Danny's type. So that might actually have gone over a lot better. But ah well, best laid plans of mice and men. So that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 5. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, found at Manuclear Bomb. And you can also now find us on Instagram at Nauticast ASOIAF. So I got my next uh, Lord of the Rings episode coming out for patrons, book six, chapter one. That's going to be coming out soon as we dive into the final book of Lord of the Rings. A couple weeks from now, I'll be getting my next Star Wars episode out for all five and above patrons, carrying on through Revenge of the Sith. But next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, we will be back with Barak and the Brotherhood for A Storm of Swords Arya 7. And we'll be having on a special guest for that, our very own Wolfman Zack, our Hand of the King. So he's going to be joining us for our next uh, Arya chapter. So uh, thanks again for listening. We will see you next time in Acewath for A Storm of Swords Arya 7. <laughs>